Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our guests. Thank you for this. Oh, there it goes. If at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Today is the sixth day of the seventh month. That means we have four days until the fast, which we can't lose sight of. I know we're all excited about the Feast of Tabernacles, but let's not lose sight of the fast. We are continuing through our study of the dispersion epistles. I thought, uh, in fact, in the title I said we would get to conclude them today. We will not. I thought we could, but as I was working through it, it became evident that we will not conclude it today. But just by way of review, for those of you who were here for the first three we were working through James and Peter as part of their acknowledging and their introduction that they were writing to the dispersion, God's people who were scattered outside of Judea, outside of Jerusalem, for their safety's sake due to the, the uh, persecution that was happening against God's people in the early New Testament church. James, of course, wrote in the mid-40s, uh, just a little over a decade after Christ's crucifixion, And in that time, from the first Pentecost through to when James wrote, that happy, productive church, the happy, productive New Testament church, started to face increasing persecution, James being the brother of Christ, and we had two separate studies through this, reminded us of his brother's expectations, his savior, also his physical half-brother, of his expectations of our behavior in the middle of trial and trouble. And he simply, when we walked through James, we saw how everything that he wrote about was simply a reminder to God's people of stuff that Christ had covered in his ministry. You recall last time when we started into 1 Peter that we talked about how Peter wrote 15 to 20 years later than James, likely around 62 AD, the persecution came to a head in 64 AD and really took off after that under Nero. And then he wrote his second epistle, likely around 67 AD, just before he and Paul suffered martyrdom. And when we talked about that, we, I asked you to consider the changes that occurred in our, have occurred in our time over 15 years and project that back on the changes that probably occurred in the society in which God's people lived from the time that James wrote through to the time that Paul wrote, just to have a, an impact as to the difference, what the church was going through when James wrote compared to when Peter started to write, would be similar in scope to what we could have written 15 years ago at the start of the 2000s before 9-11 through to 16 years later, what we would be able to write now. Let's be honest, what we could have written last year versus what we were able to write this year. There's, we can see as we walk through these dispersion epistles why they continue to need to remind God's people how to act and how to behave in, in the midst of persecution and trouble. Both wrote, as we said, to brethren that had either fled Jerusalem because of persecution or had been converted into the faith through congregations that were set up in this dispersion map that we had gone through, that we had shown, many of which were set up by Paul, over the course of his journeys, his ministerial journeys. And again, while I thought I would 
complete First Peter today. We're not going to be able to do that. Last study, we walked through First Peter, really set up the, the foundation for Peter's writing. And you'll recall we talked about how he began his letter by focusing on the hope of the resurrection. That was the foundation of what he was writing. That of all the things that we have to believe in, our hope is in the resurrection. And it is the reason for us to be holy. The fact that we have this hope, that we believe that Christ came, died, and rose again, and the fact, the very fact that our Father could raise his Son from, the, from death gives us hope that he will do the same for us. And it is the reason for us to be holy. And we see that's what Peter laid his, the foundation of his letter upon. So why behave in a certain way when we consider Peter? can be applied to James 2, but we're going to focus on finishing off Peter. Why behave in a certain way amidst all the turmoil that surrounded them? Why is it important for us to understand why we need to behave in a certain way amidst trouble? It is because of their core belief in the resurrection. Being future-focused and not present-day-focused. And when we, when we continue to review, let's go to First Peter chapter 1. And we noted this as a key passage in the understanding of what Peter was trying to teach us, what he was trying to teach his followers at the time, and by extension us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, we read this last time, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So critical here to understand that our objective, in, as we proceed through this life, is to be holy. Act in a way that exemplifies holiness. Under the understanding and the, the context of girding up the loins of our mind. And you recall we flashed up, but girding the loins men, and it was a, a warrior with the, his long tunic, and in order to prepare for battle, by girding up his loins, he would wrap the tunic that was hanging down underneath his legs and tied off in a knot so that he was ready for battle. Here, Peter is telling us we need to prepare our minds for battle. So if we're preparing our minds for battle, there must be something we are battling against, and that is this persecution that they were going through. Then we concluded last time, we just started into the second chapter of First Peter because this really concluded the introduction to his letter, to the introductory part to his letter, where we were therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord, that the Lord is gracious. So again, our understanding that, that out of God's grace, he has provided Salvation through the death of his son, which gives us hope that we will live again after we die. And in doing so, that guides our behavior today. And it, it helps us understand how not to behave, and then on the flip side of the coin, how to behave. So let's continue through this letter as we make our way through these, these dispersion epistles and study now the rest of the rest of uh, First Peter, the first letter that Peter had to the dispersion. But as a reminder, 
that as we read through this, always remember context. And it was great, too, as we had the year-end review with the youth, that as they walked through and, and enumerated the lessons, narrative and context and structure, that context is important. And our youth understand, after four years of study, that context is important. So understanding what we, we, we built out as context being the persecution that God's people were going through at the hands of, of Rome and also at the hands of, of their fellow countrymen, their fellow, uh, uh, their fellow Jews who succumbed to the pressure. We'll begin in verse 4 as we continue to walk through here. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it also contained in the scripture that, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So as we consider that Peter is now making the jump from, from the introductory portion of his letter, he's reminding them that they are a chosen people. We heard today covered off in, in the the uh, sermonette portion covered much of this, this idea of covenant, that God's people now are part of a new covenant. And we, we won't rehash what uh, Pastor Adrian covered, but it was a, a, a good link to what we're talking about here. But here we see Peter reminding them that they are a spiritual house. So when we keep your place there, let's go to, we've covered, we covered this before, let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 and consider that as God's people, and this was a reminder that Peter was giving these persecuted Christians, a reminder that they were the temple of God. And this is, this is an important understanding here, because as we consider how we conduct ourselves, it's important to always remember we are the temple of God. And we see in 1 Corinthians 6, and there are two ways to consider this. And again, the youth brought this out in their review as well, which was, Again, a joy to hear them bringing this out. The initial way that we look at ourselves as the temple of God is as individuals, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Or do you, and again, cutting into context here, cutting into the, 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 the writing here, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you, that you have from God, and you are not your own? So as individual followers of Christ, our body represents the temple of God. It is, and it is the, the vessel in which he has given his Holy Spirit, in which his Holy Spirit dwells. And as individuals, we are a temple of God. But more importantly, understanding that as a basis, let's go back a few chapters to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, and understand that as a congregational unit, as a family here, as the, the Corinthians were, that as congregations, as the body of Christ, we are as a unit, the body of Christ. We are as a unit, a temple of God. And we see that here in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, plural, 
you are God's field and you are God's building. So we see here that not only are we individually temples of God, but as a group, as a family, as a congregation, we are the temple of God. And Peter was reminding his, the, the readers of this epistle this very aspect. You can flip back to First Peter. We'll continue there. That Christ, this living stone, this, this foundational stone, was the, the foundation upon which his temple is built. It is the foundation upon which we build our temple, both as individual followers of God and as a family. And that God is building his spiritual house, his body, here through us. And that is not a, that is not a fact to overlook or to become numb to because we hear it a lot. It is an important fact that we cannot forget we are the temple of God. We here as, the, as, as, a, as a unit are the body, part of the body of Christ. Verse 6. We read verse 6 through 8. Let's look at it again. He now jumps to talking about a couple of groups of people here. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will try by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. So we've got you and we've got they. We've got you and they. They are talking about those who are persecuting them, which are their own countrymen, which are, as we heard about in the sermonette, the Israel of old who rejected God and walked away from the Mosaic Covenant. But God has set up a new covenant, and here it is those with the old covenant who walked away who will, as we know in the future, be, be brought back in. But in, as Peter was writing, they were persecuting those of the new covenant. They were joining in in the persecution that we saw, that we, that we know from history, was part of the, the, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would persecute, and then it offered us a, a, a choice. Either join us and persecute God's people, or stand up for God in the face of, of persecution. Here, they stumbled, which is what Peter is referring to, those who were inflicting this, this trial upon the people he was writing to that they were disobedient to the word. They did not stand up for what they knew to be truth. They did not stand up for God's people. But to you who believe, to you who will stay faithful to this cause, he notes that this is a precious cause to stay faithful to, and that you become part of the foundation upon which Christ builds his body. So again, as, as he's, he's just continually trying to remind people the importance of staying faithful, and amidst all the trouble that surrounds here, why is it, it is important to always remember who you are, the covenant that you have, that, that God will not walk away from his covenant if you stay true to it. The only person that, that as we heard again, I believe in the, in the youth study, uh, was you walk away from the covenant. God is always faithful. We heard that in the sermon and in the youth study. And again, Romans 11 deals with the future and God's plan. We've heard we've heard. Then that's not the purpose of this message here, but just as a reminder, we heard about it extensively on the Feast of Trumpets, that God will bring them back in. 
Then he, verse 9, continues to follow through on the you part. There's they, and now there's you. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, and you are a holy nation. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You, referencing anyone who's reading this, who is part of the faith, who's accepted Christ, he's, re- he's looking and talking specifically to you. So you can cross out that word you and insert your own name there. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are part of the first fruits. You are part of the first fruits. We, and we can never forget who we are. Peter continues to remind them their place in the plan to give them impetus and reason to stay faithful and to reject the, the temptation to turn their back and, and protect this physical life. You are part of the first fruits. You are chosen. You are royal. And you are holy. God selected you. You answered the call. And in doing so, you become part of royalty. You become part of world. You become part of holiness. Day-to-day life, trials, sicknesses, times of trouble, all of these mean nothing or pale in comparison to the fact that you were chosen by God and you are part of his future. You are a child of the living God. And as it sounds repetitive when we were talking to the, the young people in the review, to, the review today. It sounds repetitive, but the more we hear it, the more we believe it. The more we focus on it, the more we remember it. When the time comes where we may be presented with a choice, it becomes part of the, it becomes part of the, the, the viewpoint that we look through. And do I make this choice? No, I'm a child of God. I have been chosen. I am royal. I am holy. I will maintain my faithfulness to the covenant. But again, as he went over this with them, he always reminded them why. Why is it important to remember who you are? Why is is it important to remind you that you are a chosen, royal, and holy generation? Is it to make you feel good? Is it to make you feel special? No. It is to proclaim him, and we see it in verse 9, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out. We use our faith as a basis to glorify God, to show people that there is a better way of life. There is a better way to live. That staying faithful against trials and trouble brings glory to, to glory to our Father and glory to our Savior. Continuing down in verse eleven, beloved, and continuing with this this, this part of his theme here. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, understanding that you are this specially called out people, that you are part of this first fruits, that you are heirs to this holy kingdom, that you are part of eternal royalty. I beg you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. I plead with you, please see the value in your calling. Please understand that what is presented out there 
pales in comparison to what you have, you have become a part of. This was, as we heard on, on trumpets, Paul would have given his eternal life if people would have understood this, if he could have everyone understand this. Here, Peter is, is pleading with the people to understand, to turn your back on distraction, to turn your back on, on what pleases the fleshly body so you can remain faithful to the covenant. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. It's important that we don't just look holy when we're in the presence of others who are holy. It's important that we are holy in the presence of all people. Because as others know what our faith is, we reflect our Father and our Savior in that, in that regard. So that we, our conduct, as he continues in verse 12, have your, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you, because you know what? People will speak against us. People, people who are not of this faith, who are working for the adversary, will speak evil of us. If the evil they speak of us is because we are following God, then we have done our due, when we, we are, have done our due diligence. We are representing our Father and our Savior in the right way. Let the things that they say against us be the fact that we are following God. If that's all they have to say about us, speak away. Speak away. I beg you, remember this and live accordingly so that others, we sing this hymn, let others see Jesus in you. It's a nice, it's a nice hymn that we sing, but it's an, it's an impactful statement. Others must see God in us. That you, they, and continuing here, verse 12, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. When Christ returns, they will have an opportunity to maybe make the mental connection. I saw that. I saw that. I saw that person do this. I saw that person live this life. If you were spoken of in a bad way, let it be that someone was offended because you followed God's ways. Let someone be offended because you lived a godly life. And don't be, don't be put off that someone is offended by that way. Not, let it not be said that someone was offended because you, li- you lived a life of hypocrisy. Let them be offended because you lived a godly life. That is what Peter here is reminding the, the followers here. So what are our obligations in this world? We are called to live in this world, to be a part of this world. The kingdom is not here yet. So we are living our life. We are ambassadors of God. We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ, living our lives in this world. What are our obligations in this world? When we see a world that is led by those who are not followers of God, and their time is equivalent to our time. We can look and follow our news and look at our government, look at our education system, look at our political system, look at the outside religious influences. Nobody follows God anymore. We can walk through some of the, as we have done, we can walk through some of the the prophetic records and see it being fulfilled where good good is deemed evil, evil is deemed good. There's no right. Right is whatever you determine for yourselves. What are our obligations as we live in this world? Peter goes on, as we'll see, to talk about their obligations. Let's face reality. You need to live in this world. 
You need to live a godly life in this world. But we live and find ourselves under various authorities of those who do not follow God's ways. So what are our obligations? How do we live a godly life in a world where we are subject to those who do not follow God's ways? This is a critical question that Peter was trying to tackle here. As he built out the the foundation and acknowledged that they were living a life in a trialsome period, in a troublesome period, they could see society change around them. From the time they read James' epistle 15 to 20 years previously to the time now, they saw the world degrade. Yet he was asking them to hang on. He was, as in his words, he was begging them to live a right life. But acknowledging that we still have to do this in an evil world. In a world where laws change. It, this used to be an easy way to live. It was easy. We just didn't keep Sunday. That was, that was, that was our, that was our, that was really our, our, uh, Stumbling block, uh, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Most of our, our, our brotherhood came out of Sunday worship. That was it. That was, that was the stumbling block. They faced family who were upset with them because they didn't keep Christmas and Easter any longer. They didn't go to church on Sunday. They looked Jewish, in, quote, in quotation marks for those who are listening by audio. We see laws changing around us that it is, we continue to, every week, we, we follow the news, and I can't believe the stuff that continues to change. Here, just this week, just this week, in Canada, they tried to pass these, these laws that made uh, Islamophobia illegal. That turns into anything that anyone says anywhere that might have a negative connotation about Islam becomes hate speech. And for not the two or three conservatives who yelled, no, it would have passed. Because in this particular type of vote, it was just a, a let's get uh, every, everybody say yay or nay, and there was a cut, two or three or four people, I don't know the exact number, yelled no, so it actually failed. Next year, who knows? It might not fail. So therefore, what we're saying now is hate speech. Because we're not advocating that philosophy. So how do we live a life now that honors God in this world? It revolves around the word submission. That's what Peter now delves into. He delves into various relationships that we have from the point of view of submission. And the key to understanding this is to understand the meaning of the word submission. We can't necessarily or properly read back into this what we may have a preconceived notion of what submission is. Because there are various meanings to the word. One of the meanings is to obey. I don't know, I'm confident, actually, I do know, God is not expecting us to obey right down to the letter of every law something that goes against what he, what he deems to be his law. So are we to submit to the ways of this world, right down to the, the T, from the point of view of obedience? Or could the word submission, as the various meanings go here, have to do more with subjecting oneself to? Let's walk through some of these relationships that Peter talks about 
as we understand how he expects us to cope in a world where we are subject to those who do not follow his ways. We consider the various possible usages, whether it's to place in rank under. That's one use of this Greek word, which is hupotasso. Hupotasso is the, the Greek word for submit. So it can be to place in rank underneath. It can be to subject oneself to, or it could mean to obey. There are three possible scenarios. Let's consider the context. Let's consider the context here. as, And remember what Paul said. Let's go to, hold your place there. Let's go to Ephesians 6. Use this as an example. Of being subject to, to someone without always necessarily obeying them. A simple principle here, but one that, that bears looking at quickly. Ephesians 6 and in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. When we read that, it calls for obedience from a child to his parent, with the stipulation that it be done in the Lord. So if a parent is commanding you to break God's law, you have, a, you have an exception to, to that, that rule there where you follow God. Obey your parents in the Lord. Let's go back to 1 Peter and start looking at this, these various relationships that Peter covers here and understand that defining the word submission by strict 100% obedience isn't accurate. But we can subject ourselves to these authorities without necessarily following them down the path of disobedience. Verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves or subject yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. We are, are One of the relationships we have is that we are under the authority of a government who does not believe in God. We are citizens of Canada, and we are under the authority of the Canadian government, and they do not. Th- those who have rule over us do not believe in God, They do not believe in his ways like we do. So we are subject to things like taxes. I don't like to pay taxes. But there's nothing within God's law that prevents me from paying taxes. In fact, we won't take time to go to, but render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It's not wrong to pay taxes. So we pay our taxes. We pray for our leaders. Sometimes it's tough to pray for these folks, but God commands us to pray for our leaders because they have authority over us. They, have, they are in a position of authority over us. We follow laws that may be inconvenient. It may be personally inconvenient for us, and we may have a thousand reasons we could get around a law, but as long as it doesn't violate a law of God, we are subject to those laws. We're subject to those laws. 
You may have other examples of what it means to be subject to a government without having to disobey God. But our obligation, as he says down in verse 17, is to honor those who are not of the faith. Honor all people. So consider that he further defines love the brotherhood. Honor those who are not of the brotherhood. Respect them. As human beings on planet Earth, respect those who are not of the faith. They are part of God's creation. They are potential children of God. So we honor and respect them. We honor and respect our king, in our case, our, our government. We, we can honor them through our respect. They do hold a place of authority over us. But we love the brotherhood. The brotherhood is something special. Because the brotherhood is chosen, royal, and holy, we love them. We place them within our sphere at a greater level of influence. And we fear God. We may respect and honor our king, our governmental authorities, but we fear our father. We fear our savior. They hold the ultimate reign over us. So if our government asks us to do something that violates God's laws, we're subject to our father first. And we may suffer persecution at the hands of our government if we choose to follow our God over our king. But Peter here is acknowledging that as we walk through this life, this is an example of a relationship that where possible, we submit to them. We subject ourselves to them. That where it does not violate his law, we subject ourselves to it. Why? Again, it's always important to understand why. Because then it gives us reason to obey. It gives us reason to follow these instructions for verse 15 let's read it again for this is the will of god that by doing so you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men our example has an effect on those who see it it may not now but it ultimately will have an effect and again putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men remember who they serve and we i sort of covered this a little bit in the offertory Remember who they serve. They serve, the, they serve the adversary. If they're not serving God, they're serving the adversary. There's no kind of middle ground here. You're following God or you're a tool for the adversary. So our government, un, hopefully unbeknownst to them, are a tool in the hands of Satan. That's, that's, that's what they are. If they don't follow God, they are at best neutral, more likely a tool to the adversary. So if they ask us to, if, they, if laws come into play where we are not allowed to preach from the Bible because it's hate speech, we preach from the Bible because our God has asked us to do that. We fear our God over honoring our king. Fear versus honor and respect. But remembering who they serve. Verse 18. Employers. Here we have the word masters, and we we the the slave master relationship was a part of the economic background of that time. Let's look at this and extrapolate this into our time and look at this as an employer relationship. From an employer, or if you're going to school, let's let's consider our professors, our teachers, our, our high school folks, our teachers. We all are in submission 
under the authority of employers or educators who do not believe in God, his ways, like we do. Every day you get up and go to work, and if you have your own business, you're subject to the whims of, your, of the, the folks that you have signed contracts with. So we all, everybody has a boss, whether it's a, an, an employer relationship or whether it's a, a vendor relationship. Every day I get up and I go to work because someone has set my timetable for me. It says, if you want to be paid, you will show up at this time. If you want to be paid, you will, use, you will do these functions. For our young people, it means our teachers or our professors. As that example I used in, in uh, the offertory, sometimes I need to take a zero on a test to follow God. That's what was presented. We try every avenue available, but sometimes, and it's, it's unbelievably rare, but as, as society continues to change, it may become not so rare. It may become not so rare. Sometimes we need to take a zero to follow God. We were called to suffer for good. Let's read this here. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. We all have had probably someone in our life from an employment or an educational perspective that was a tough person to work for. That was not easy to work for. Here, subject yourselves to, to all of your masters with all fear, not just to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? If I've done wrong and I'm being punished at work or school, we can't even get on our knees and ask for mercy in that case. We can apologize, but if we've brought, if we've brought anger upon ourselves through, through our actions, as, 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 and we, we accept that, that's not, not even mentionable. But when you do good and suffer, and you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Understand, we were called to this. We were, and we continue to, to re- remind ourselves of this because we cannot forget we were called with the possibility of suffering. Because Christ, as he continued here in verse 21, also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Remember, I could call, do you not know I could call upon legions of angels and this would be over? I could have this snuffed out right now. But that is not my father's will. On the, on, the, on the converse side, he stood up at the temple when his father's house was being disrespected. He stood up for others who could not stand up for themselves, but never, ever, ever stood up for himself when he was facing persecution. Because he knew that was part of the, that was part of the deal. I'll stand up for my father when his house is being disrespected. I will stand up for some others who may not be farther, uh, far enough along in their calling and cannot stand up for themselves. But I'm not going to make a big deal of it if I'm being persecuted myself. Christ understood that was part of the deal. Leaving us an example, continuing verse 21, that you should follow his steps. 
who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he was harmed, when he was disrespected, he let it go. If something offended him, it, this is part of the deal here. When he, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who, bore him, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. Again, reminding, reminding the, the readers here that the miracle of healing was part and parcel of the fact that Christ did suffer, that Christ was persecuted, that he was beaten, and that we have this avenue to call upon God for healing because of Christ's suffering. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we find ourselves in a daily relationship with employers, vendors, or teachers who don't follow God. Yet we have to, in this case, where it does not violate God's law, subject ourselves to that while we're on this earth. While we're on this earth, we subject ourselves to that. Living peaceably under that subjection. Again, always with the corollary that it doesn't violate God's law. Husbands and wives is another relationship we have here on this earth. Now, this is not to be read in the context of the 1950s, I am in charge and you'll do what I say paradigm. It is also equivalently not to be read from the women's liberation, 1970s, 80s, 90s, you, won't tell, you will not tell me what I can and cannot do. Both have been prevalent within the church. and Both are wrong. And do not reflect, importantly here, they do not reflect the agape that we are trying to put on at all. Remembering the context that this is written during a time of dispersion, this persecuted time of the dispersion. Understanding that it finds its place amongst the various relationships that Peter covers here. Peter covers various relationships that we have here. Understanding that as we, we have worked through the various meanings of the word submit, subject oneself to, as long as it does not violate God's law, seems to be the most logical explanation of this word. And, as we again covered in the youth study, understanding the overall biblical storyline and narrative. How did Christ treat women? What was the relationship between a husband and wife that Christ expected? Understand all of that as we read 1 Peter 3. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Sometimes wives are under the authority of husbands who do not believe in God or who do not follow God or who do not practice the ways of God. So as a Christian woman and you find yourself in a marital relationship where your spouse, your husband, is not a follower of God, we have a similar sort of quandary that Peter presents, just like he did with being, uh, subjecting ourselves to government 
and subjecting ourselves to the employer-employee relationship. That they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do do good and are not afraid with any terror. So again, the admonition to be modest, in your, not just in what you wear, but in your mindset, in your acts, and your deeds, towards, in this case, a husband who may not be a follower, who may not be the co-heir that we'll read about in verse 7. Why is that important? I can be, for whatever reason, if you find yourself in a spot where you are called and have answered the call, and your husband has not, I can be a strong woman, and I will stand up to him. But we do so under the modicum of subjection, as is explained to us here by Peter. Why? So that we win them over to God. This is all about how our behavior looks in the eyes of those who are not believers. Remembering, we won't turn there for time's sake, but 1 Corinthians 7.14 reminds us that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified, is set apart and made holy, by the believing, by another believing spouse. And here, in doing so, we, we, we like the phrase sons of Abraham. Here, in this particular context, Peter reminds them they can be daughters of Sarah. Daughters of Sarah, following in her steps, footsteps of faithfulness. And reminding them to do good in God's eyes and not to be afraid. This is all about having confidence in God, not being afraid, but when needed, where it's right to subject ourselves to those who may not believe in God, but we do so in the context of not disobeying him. So again, we see this marital relationship that Peter defines here as maybe you're married to someone who is not a converted spouse. And that doesn't change how we act so that there's an opportunity for us to win them over to God. Verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Some of you may note that there's an explanation of this word heirs together. And the word is sunkle ronomos, sunkle ronomos. And this specifically has to do with being co-heirs and joint heirs. So that the, the, as, as a believing husband leading his home, your marital relationship, you see that both you and your spouse are co-heirs with Christ. And if you've ever gone through marriage counseling, hopefully your marriage counseling will explain to you that it is a three-way partnership. It is a partnership, three ways. The husband, the wife, and Christ. 
And in doing so, it, as we, we read that, this word here, being heirs together, this is being joint heirs, co-heirs in eternal life. And to honor as you would a weaker vessel. Sometimes that can bristle a little bit because, oh, Peter is saying the wife is the weaker vessel. Perhaps what he means here, food for thought, of course, in most relationships, the man is the stronger, more, more physically stronger, most, not always. But here, what we read here, it's, this is about honoring as to a weaker vessel. So much like we would take care of a weaker, weaker vessel, we, we preserve and honor our wives in that same way, that we take care of that. In the same way, if we had a, a, a fine china dish that would be, could seen as a, a weaker vessel, we would, we would handle it with care. We would take care of it with care. Not necessarily because she is the weaker vessel, but as we would to a weaker vessel. But again, all revolving around this word honor and respect in, this, in the relationship. So we see here, Peter takes time to walk through some of these relationships that we have as living in this world. Sometimes we will be part of a marriage covenant where one partner is not a follower of God. As we, we heard, we prayed for one of our brothers whose, whose wife is, is not a follower. Other times, it's an employer relationship. Other times, it is the government relationship. What I'd like to do here is skip ahead to chapter 5 for a minute. A brief part here. And add in a final submit directive to this overall theme here that we're looking at of submission as Peter helps us understand our expectations in being subject to other authorities. Verse 5 of chapter 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. This word is presbytero. can mean presbytero can mean the office of a minister or it can mean the older, more experienced people in a group. And in this case, I think both here applies. So whether it be looking at it to the office of a minister or to the older folks that are, represent the group that you're a part of. And we can apply it to both. What to do when you feel you are right, but not in a position of influence or not being hurt by those who are older than you? I bring this up because I was in your spot and I struggled with this as a young man growing up in the church. I struggled as I was a young boy being guided through the church by those who had influence over me, not just my parents, but those who I considered close to me. Raised in my teens, developed an understanding for God, much like you guys are doing and was on display here today. Became baptized at 21 and started to still live while I was still going to school. I was living at home, but I'm a 21-year-old baptized person now. I'm a, I'm a man. I have my own thoughts. I have my own, my own opinions. And struggling with the fact that I grew up in the church. I'm baptized. I'm now an adult around people who's always seen me around as kids. How do I get the respect of being an adult? A baptized adult, let's say or not even a baptized adult, in a place where everyone has seen me as a kid. I struggled with that. 
I struggled with that. I don't know if anybody struggles with that, but I'd like to share my struggles with you. Around people who knew me as a kid, how do you grow in the faith? How do you gain confidence as a man or a woman? Around those who have only known you as a kid. Peter here says, submit yourselves to your elders. Be be subject to them. We have two options. We have two options. Let's look at those two options on display. 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Because sometimes adults do make mistakes. We, do, we don't know everything. We don't know everything. Our, our government doesn't know everything. Yet Peter admonishes us to be subject to them. Our educators, our employers don't know everything. Yet Peter asks us and, command, and, and reminds us we are to be subject to them. Our marital relationships, especially those where one spouse is not part of the faith, but in, in, as Peter was writing, it can apply to both. We're still asked to be subject to one another, even though our partner may not know everything. And we may have the better, the better idea. In all these cases, how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile this in, in your behavior? And we see that here as we talk about this as young people grow in the faith. Second Kings chapter 2, verse 23. Again, we don't have time to go through the whole story. But he came up talking about Elisha. He went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him. And said to him, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. You know what? Sometimes old people make mistakes. Do we? Our choice can be, they are so out of touch. They have no idea what they're talking about. They are not a person who grew up in the 2010s. They grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s. They have no idea what we're going through. Look at those, look at those old bald heads as they mocked Elisha. Or let's go to Job 32. And let's look at, as I consider my struggle with, in my younger days, trying to understand how to become an adult in a congregation where I had been a kid. We look at the example of Elihu. And this is a powerful example to me. It was a powerful example to me. I hope it is to you. So let's just read this story as it is a story. We know that Job had friends come over, and he had some friends that were telling this is what you should do. And they weren't telling him the right things. They thought they were trying to help, but they weren't helping. So these three men, verse 1, ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also, against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So we have young Elihu here, who's part of the circle of friends, and he's the youngest one. And he's seeing his friend Job go through trouble. And as he's seeing him go through trouble, these three other men are giving him advice. And he's sitting there going, that makes absolutely no sense. How in the world 
Can grown men give this guy this type of advice when it makes absolutely zero sense and think that they're trying to help? Did he get out there and say, you old baldies, you guys be quiet and let me speak? What he said was, now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. He bided his time. So Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid, and I dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, Listen to me. I will also declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings. And while you searched out what to say, I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced him or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escaped them, and I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still, and I answered no more. I also will hear. I will also answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent; it is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter else my maker would take me away. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. So consider the context here. He's sitting there, as we said, listening to this absolutely nonsensical advice coming. But he said, listen, I'm the little guy here. I'm the new guy. I'm young. Wisdom should speak. So out of respect for their place in the family, I'm quiet. But guys, if I could... The floor is quiet now. Could I have a couple of minutes here? I listened to everything you had to say. And scripture doesn't back up anything you had to say. I can't believe what I'm hearing is coming from people I respect like you guys. The, the, the wisdom and the maturity that I see here, I'm flabbergasted of what I'm hearing. Would you allow me to speak? Would you allow me to Can I say something? And I'm going to say it because the spirit from within me, God is, I'm reading scripture, I know my Bible, here's what I see. We go back to Elisha's example, we go back to this example. And as I considered, as I grew in the faith, and felt I knew more than my parents, and it was something that I struggled with, especially as I lived at home until I got married. I, was a, I, I took advantage of my parents' generosity and lived at home till I was 24. So I was subject to their rules because I was living in their house. But at times I felt, rightfully so, that I knew more than they did. Or I'm part of a church group where as, as things change and we see doctrines change, I'm like, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing here. But I'm the young guy. As I grew in ministry, I struggled with the same thing. I'm just... I'm the youngest one of the ministers. So I've heard everybody speak. Can I I have some time now? 
Here's what I see. Getting respect simply takes time. Unfortunately, maturity takes time. By definition, it takes time. As he says here, if you're speaking wisdom with the proper intent for the good of all, you will be heard by those who have the Holy Spirit. If, if what you say is important enough, you will be heard if it is right. But there's a respectful, proper way to be heard and a disrespectful way. And it took me, it took me a long time to understand that. That just because my birth certificate said I was 18 or 19, there's a rightful place. And I needed to learn that. So if that is of any help at all in understanding, young people submit to the, el- the elders in your group. Hopefully that's of some help here by looking at this example of Elihu. Sometimes adults make mistakes, but they have earned their rightful spot. As Elihu said, listen, you've earned your spot to speak first. It reminds me of, in a weird kind of way, that one of those, uh, the movie A Few Good Men. You recall the movie A Few Good Men, the, the Marine movie where a uh, lieutenant played by Tom Cruise brought a colonel to trial for something that they felt was wrong in his allowing a death to happen on Guantanamo base. And the colonel, played by Jack Nicholson, was all upset because this mere lieutenant was calling him to trial and pointing out that I'm a, I'm a colonel, several ranks higher than you, and do you know who you're speaking to? And then turning to the judge and saying, what kind of institution are you running here? And the judge turned to the lieutenant and said, you will refer to him as sir or colonel, and you will refer to me as your honor. I guarantee I've earned my place. So it just sort of re- reminded me that while I, I, as I struggled with understanding my place, here Peter here admonishes our young people, that there is a way to subject oneself. And we see here with Elihu, you may be right. You may find yourselves right, but there's a way to communicate that correctness. So I appreciate you indulging me in that. It was something that, as I read that, I, it was reminded me of my struggles as I grew. But it takes time. It takes time to mature. That's all. By definition, that's what maturity is. It takes time. But as you develop becoming leaders in your circle of life. Recall those five levels of leadership you've probably heard. And that pinnacle type of leadership called uh, pinnacle, at the, it's at the pinnacle of the pyramid, put out by uh, several, in this case this was John, John uh, Maxwell, that people follow you because of who you are and what you represent. And that's what Peter was trying to teach through his his. His uh, letter, his first epistle here, that remember who you are and who you represent. That you are a royal chosen generation. That you are a royal priesthood, a holy people. And live your lives accordingly so that whether in some cases it's a marriage relationship, in some cases it's, 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 a, it's a, a youth-adult relationship, in some cases it's an employer-educator-pupil-student relationship, or in some cases, it is a government-citizen relationship. Subject yourselves properly, but become the leaders God expects you to be, and people may follow you because of who you represent. They may see what you represent and see that this is the life I need to lead, and they're doing this under trial and subjection and, 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 and uphill battle, 
Maybe that's the life I need. So back to 1 Peter 3. We'll close here in 1 Peter 3. Again, thought we could get through 1 Peter, but I, the truth of God is so big, we didn't get through it all today. We'll continue the next time we have an opportunity. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you. So again, he talks about all these various uh, roles that we play and the relationships that those roles have us in. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Again, all about how we are to behave in the midst of this, this dispersion that they found themselves in, this conflict that caused this dispersion that they found themselves in. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing knowing that you were called to this. Be patient, because you, should have, you, you know you've been called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Treat one another with love. Treat one another with the characteristics that God expects. Don't be vengeful, and, and just because you're right, return evil for evil. But understand this is what you were called to, that you may inherit this blessing of the kingdom of God and of eternal life. And again, quoting from Psalms 34, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we consider and study these dispersion epistles and view them in the light of today's ever-changing world, Peter bases his letter on the hope of the resurrection. That's what he bases his letter on. He then explains how we endure this world by coming to grips with the fact that there are plenty of people who hold influence over us and are not followers of God. That's simply a reality. It is upon this issue of the hope of the resurrection that he exhorts us to understand the reason for submission, understand the reason to subject ourselves to those in authority. We must calmly, patiently, and confidently follow God at all times. We cannot let those who are in a position of influence change us. In each, in each example, he pointed out the possibility that you could change them through your behavior. And when we profess our faith, every word and action is under a microscope and reflects completely upon our Father and upon his Son. And part of the preaching of the gospel is knowing how to act in times of trouble. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as we see the day approaching. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.